You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity and politics with Ali Ahmed. One of the key themes that I've been trying to explore in the podcast is the identity challenges that Muslims face in the West. As part of my research, I came across a book called Muslim American Women on Campus, Undergraduate Social Life and Identity. It's an ethnographic study of Muslim undergraduate women, meaning the researcher went to the campus, observed them in that environment, and talked to them about their experiences. Episode 7 of the podcast features Dr. Shaban Amir, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the American Islamic College in Chicago and the author of Muslim American Women on Campus. I spoke with Professor Amir earlier this year, and as we're now nearing the close of 2019, I wanted to use her insights and the insights from the book to tie together some of the themes that were discussed in earlier episodes of the podcast. Okay, so episode four discussed the clumsy approach of the Canadian spy agency in contacting Muslim students for information. But on U.S. campuses post-9-11, there was intense surveillance of Muslims and FBI raids of Muslim student groups. But in some senses, the fear of the state wasn't the worst part of it for Muslims. Post-9-11, the way everyone looked at Muslims changed, and having your peers look at you differently was probably the most damaging thing to those Muslim students. Here's what Professor Mir had to say on the surveillance impact. So the other type of surveillance that we're thinking about is a cultural surveillance, is a everyday surveillance. You step out and you feel like people are watching you and saying, okay, so where's the bomb, right? So how do young people who are 18, 19, just in college, how are they going to respond to those sorts of expectations, those sorts of ideas, those sorts of stereotypes that they don't just come across in their interpersonal encounters, but they also are surrounded by in terms of uh, state discourse, political conversations, in terms of policies, in terms of the media, and so on. So how do they respond to that? So the first thing that I encountered was that young people were in many ways struggling to perform for this scrutinizing gaze. And in what ways would they perform? One was, for example, they would try to prove they did not embody those stereotypes, that they did not embody violence, terrorism, and but also the more sort of, well, relatively benign stereotypes of being uptight and like perpetually religious and just like uncomfortable and weird and outsiders and foreign and so on. So there was this constant effort to show and to demonstrate that they were, you know, real human beings. In other words, they were not two-dimensional cardboard cutouts from a from a comic book, but they were real human beings and they were Americans and they were people and they had lives and they had interests and hobbies and so on. So there was that sort of performance. And then there was fatigue, constant. Throughout my research study, constant fatigue. And sometimes there were conversations where people would just like find themselves unable to talk. They would, I would ask questions and there would be short responses, incomplete sentences, those kinds of things. Just really, you know, heartbreaking for me at least. So there was the fatigue. And then there was the struggle to return to this uh, performance as well. But when you think about the performance, one was to challenge the stereotypes that they were seeing in their peers, most of all. And the other was to confirm good stereotypes. So for example, 
it is commonly believed that Muslims are religious people, right? And there's this idea that Muslims are all about their religion. They're not real people. They're just really walking religion. And for many Muslims, that was like, okay, this is a good thing. We can go with that, right? And so some Muslim youth would actually try to kind of go with that. They would try to embody that. And they would actually try to play down the cultural aspects of their lives. They would try to actually perform a call official Muslimness, right? So this was a struggle to contrast with the really damaging stereotypes that they were encountering all the time. Okay, so there's a ton going on there. But the main thing that I want you to take away is that when you're a minority and you're facing a negative stereotype, you really have one of two strategies that you can adopt. So the first one is to try to show that you're different to the stereotype. The other strategy is that you double down on the identity. So if you're Muslim, you be the absolute most Muslim you can possibly be. The thing about it is that people don't really make these choices on an explicit conscious level. You're not looking at the pressure that you're under and saying, well, I've got really two ways to counter it. You just make these decisions sort of more unconsciously. And actually, neither of these choices are really that great for the individuals or their communities. This is the effect of the pressure that's being put on the minority from outside. And Professor Mir makes this really brilliant point in her book, which is that no matter what you as an individual choose, whether you choose to blend in or whether you choose to double down on your identity, there are always people who are making the other choice. And that leads to tension. And what does that tension look like? So some Muslims will be saying, you know, tone it down, be cool, be sensitive to the culture around us. Whereas other Muslims are saying, no, we need to stand up against what we see as being oppression. And this ties into the theme of episode one, which looked at when it was that Muslims actually would get out and protest. And that tended to be those issues in which the whole society could get engaged in, like supporting refugees. There's another wrinkle here. Some people don't actually have the choice of blending in. And that could be because of their name, their appearance, or because they choose to wear hijab or something else that identifies them as Muslim. For those people, they're kind of stuck. Here's how Professor Mir describes the dilemma. So you do encounter those kinds of attitudes, and you do actually see that in my book as well, where people will say you're selling out politically. You're hiding instead of fighting this Islamophobia. You're trying to be invisible Muslims. You're blending in, but we can't hide. So for example, people who were visibly Muslim, and this is a key thing that runs through my book as well, that your behavior and the experiences that you encounter very much depend on how visible as a Muslim you are. And so that is often used also against Muslims when people are visibly Muslim. I'm not saying that you should then be invisible. I'm actually saying the opposite. But I'm saying that this is very common for people who are visibly Muslim or who have Muslim practices that are visible from the outside, that they will often encounter more uh, anti-Muslim attitudes and discrimination. This is also in the Pew research study. You, you see that there as well. Just one example, people who wear hijab, they're unable to blend in. Obviously, they are there. They are not hiding. There is a resentment on both sides. Why are you putting yourself out there? Why are you not putting yourself out there? And then also these comments, for example, one of them was a Muslim Student Association officer, and she said, this is not helpful what people are doing. 
in terms of trying to blend in, in terms of trying to play down right their Muslim identities, because it won't help in the long run. It might help you as an individual to get your jobs or to get your internships, but you're not helping the broader community. And ultimately, in the long run, this doesn't help the struggle. Because you blending in means you maybe get that job, but your community as a whole is not going to benefit from that. And of course, there is the accusation of you're being bad Muslims by playing down these identities. So, so this, uh, this young woman, Amber, for example, said, in every single thing, I feel like I have to speak up. No one else is going to do it for us. And we're just going to be stomped on. And yes, it's constant pressure. But if I don't do it, then I'm not going to respect myself. So there is that feeling as well. And there's a feeling that you're a sellout if you don't engage in that outward struggle. I have a lot of sympathy for the position that if Muslims don't stand up for themselves, nobody else is going to stand up for them. And for me, I've always looked at it in terms of civil rights. So that was the theme of episode two, looking at the freedom of religion and finding out if there are ways to defend it. Of course, other people might take a broader view. It reminds me of a story from my undergrad. A friend of mine caught me in the student union building and said, the Muslim Students Association has an intramural basketball game tonight and we are short of players. Do you want to come out and play? So I enjoyed playing recreational basketball. I said, sure, I'd love to come out. The game started and early on in the game, I stole the ball from somebody. And from the background, I heard our team captain yelling out, Allahu Akbar, God is great. But it wasn't really a casual Allahu Akbar. Basically, he was screaming it out at the top of his lungs for as long as he could hold it. And he didn't just do this on steals. He did it for baskets, block shots, big rebounds, pretty much everything. And that was just way too far outside of basketball culture for me. One of the themes that we looked at in episode three was that sometimes on your team, there will be people who have viewpoints or ways of expressing it that you don't really agree with. And that can be really awkward and uncomfortable. But in Professor Mir's book, she describes this phrase obnoxiously Muslim and why it's a problem that there isn't more tolerance for it. Obviously, there are many different ways that you can be obnoxiously Muslim. I think uh, we've all encountered the quote-unquote obnoxiously Muslim, but why does that become an issue, right? Why does that obnoxiously Muslim become an issue when other kinds of identities can be obnoxiously whatever and it's dramatic or whatever, but obnoxiously Muslim is terrifying, right? Or it is seen as being anti-American in a way. So yeah, so the obnoxiously Muslim attitude running through the book is the idea not to be obnoxiously Muslim, but the extent to which that any identity is seen as obnoxiously Muslim is very wide ranging. You can be obnoxiously Muslim in all kinds of ways. So I had young women who would make a point of not saying, I don't drink. They go to a party, they would say, yeah, I don't say that I don't drink. I just say, oh, can I have some orange juice, right? So the fact that you have to not say that, not say I don't drink because I'm Muslim, is a strange thing. It's an obnoxiously anti-Muslim attitude. So that's where I take issue with this idea of obnoxious Muslimness, even though I have encountered Muslims who could be obnoxious, but I still take issue with the idea. This reminds me of a time when I was about 14, way before 9-11, and I was riding in a car with some community-minded Muslim friends of mine. 
And we drove up to a police check stop. And the police officer came to the car and said, have you had anything to drink tonight? And the driver of the car said, no, I haven't. I'm Muslim. And I remember thinking, why didn't you just say no? And in the post 9-11 era, I think he would just say no. And for me, that's a bigger problem. This has only covered a small part of my conversation with Professor Mir, which covers an even smaller part of her book. But my overarching takeaway from Muslim American women on campus is that Muslims in the West need to continue the struggle for tolerance and inclusion. And perhaps the toughest battleground will be within ourselves. Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.